Would you stand with me as we read? We're reading Nehemiah chapter 6. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Hecophirum in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to, the, to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel, and that is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king, and you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deleah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood that what that and saw that God had not sent him, but he had prophesied the prophecy concerning me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin so that he could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Erah, and his son Johanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam and the son of Berechiah as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. The word of the Lord.
service got a little treat this morning as uh, Ricky didn't sing in the first service in his confession. And so I was surprised. I thought it was a lovely voice. If you are a guest with us, you find us in the middle of a sermon series in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah titled Building Worship. And uh, this week in chapter 6, we come across a conspiracy that is uh, unfolding against Nehemiah. And to understand Nehemiah 6 and the nature of this conspiracy, you need, to un- you need to situate this opposition that is going on within a larger framework. This opposition doesn't simply exist because Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem want to keep the status quo of power in the region. They want to keep Israel from regaining power and rebuilding their city and momentum. It's more than that. While it's certainly true that they want to maintain the status quo, the reality is their opposition from these three is really just the visible display of a much larger spiritual battle that is being waged against God's people, against Nehemiah, and against the work that they're trying to accomplish. It's important that we recognize the presence of the spiritual battle in this story. Because if we don't, then we will actually miss a far deeper meaning of this passage and what it means for us. Now, given your background, if it's like mine, you hear uh, the phrase spiritual battle and you cringe a little bit. You uh, wonder what I could possibly be saying next. You might roll your eyes and you might even think of some crazy stories uh, that it brings up, some wild memories. One for me this week was thinking of spiritual warfare. A church I spent years at in college, uh, there were some people that went on a uh, mission trip to Guatemala, and they had a long drive out into the jungles and the mountains of Guatemala on these dirt roads, and all of a sudden, the bus breaks down. It breaks down as they're on their way to do ministry, and of course, their first thought was, we're being spiritually attacked. We are being impeded in our journey to do ministry. This is nothing short of spiritual warfare. And so they got out on the side of the road, and they laid hands on the bus, and they tried to cast a demon out of the bus. Truth is, it was just out of gas. Those carburetor demons can be pesky. The truth is, spiritual warfare can often be more silliness than it is spiritual. And because of that, you probably write it off. And you actually think it has no pertinence in your life. And you look at a story like this with Nehemiah and all the opposition that he faced, and you don't necessarily think of it as spiritual warfare because you don't particularly think of your own life as being involved in any particular spiritual battle. We don't give any credit to spiritual warfare being waged behind the veil of our daily events and circumstances on any regular basis. But the Scriptures tell a completely different story that urges you to reconsider and to think about your life from a completely different perspective. In Genesis 3, when the serpent is cursed, God says he will put warfare and hostility between him and the children, the offspring of Eve. Put warfare and hostility and enmity between them, and a war will be waged. In chapter 12 of Revelation, the serpent over throughout the story of the scriptures, now is seen for what he is. He's seen as a dragon that not only deceived Eve and Adam and both Eve, both Adam and Eve, but also deceives the whole world. You have Daniel in chapter 10, 
An angel appears to him and says, I would have come to you sooner, but I was withheld by the prince of Persia for 21 days, and I was left alone with the spiritual powers. And I could not come to you until Michael, the archangel, was able to come and relieve me. Or what about Peter when Jesus tells him in Luke 22, Peter, do you not know that Satan has asked to sift you like wheat? Do you not know that he has requested you? And you have Paul in his letter to the Ephesians at the end. He says, tells them to expand their imaginations for what's going on in the world around them. And he says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, and the cosmic powers of this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, do you think about your life on those terms at all? Do you think about your life in this way? Scriptures speak of a spiritual battle that's far more prevalent and far more influential than we want to give credit. And of course, yes, we can, we can think of casting a demon out of a bus, you know, spiritual warfare. We can certainly mistake what spiritual warfare is. But at the same time, we don't want to make the mistake of underestimating it either. So if it's so pervasive, and the Scriptures tell of a story where it lies behind the veil of our circumstances... How does it operate? What does it look like? How does it work itself out in the world? And these three temptations that Nehemiah faces show how subtle it can be. It shows how simple it comes. It shows how subtle it can present itself and distract you and twist truth. But don't mistake its subtlety for its lack of power and influence. Because what we see in Nehemiah's story plays out in your own. So what do we see? We start off the chapter, and the wall is being, uh, being worked on, and it has been com- nearly completed. All of the holes and the breaches in the wall have been repaired, but there's still work to do. And even though Nehemiah was nearly done with the work, it doesn't stop Sanballat from ratcheting up his opposition against Nehemiah and trying to sabotage the work. He tries these three different tactics. And in verse 2, his first one is to send messengers to Nehemiah while he's working on the wall. And he says, come down from the wall and let's meet together. Come down from the wall, Nehemiah, and let's talk. And in short, he's basically just extending an invitation under the guise of a negotiation. As if to say, Nehemiah, let's sit down and talk this through. Certainly there's a way for you to get what you want and for me to get what I want. We can have some sort of compromise. Let's bury the hatchet. Let's put the past behind us. And let's work this out, you and me. And at first glance, it might seem like a relief to Nehemiah, considering Sambalot had surrounded him days before, weeks before. It might seem like a relief and a nice, reasonable invitation that's being extended to him. If you think about Another layer is Nehemiah had to be a a tired man. He had to be worn out. He'd been working on the wall nonstop, motivating God's people to continue in the face of the opposition that's being imposed upon them. He had to settle the disagreements and the disunity among God's people. And all the while, he had to continue to plan and strategize how to complete this massive project that laid before him. And so, of course, you know, an offer like this would be enticing. 
It'd be easy to think, well, I guess I could at least hear what they have to say. I guess I could see what they're thinking about and what their offer is. It certainly would be nice to make this a little bit easier on myself. It would be nicer to strike a deal so the people don't have to live in fear anymore. A peace treaty would really help. And this temptation for Nehemiah is is very simple and very subtle. And it's one that plays off of his curiosity on how he might make the work that God gave him easier, a little more comfortable. And it sells him the lie that there's common ground between him and his enemies and that they can reach an understanding and that the work can still get done. And in thinking about that, I remember Neville Chamberlain this week. He's the Prime Minister of Britain in the late 30s. And in 1938, he um, met with Adolf Hitler after Hitler had taken some of the land from Czechoslovakia at the time. And they meet in Eastern Europe, and they sit down, and they talk about a peace treaty, and they hammer one out, and they agree to terms of this peace treaty. And Neville Chamberlain comes back to Britain, and he's on the boat in a famous picture. He's waving the peace treaty over his head, waving it, and he says in a speech, the famous, uh, famous line, he says, finally, we have peace for our time. Peace for our time. And the only thing that peace treaty did was allow Hitler to not have any eyes upon him so that he could get his forces in place. And within a year, he invaded Poland. And by that time, there was nothing that they could do to stop him. There are some enemies that you do not negotiate with under any circumstances. And Nehemiah doesn't underestimate his enemy and knows that there can be no negotiation. There is no common ground and there is no potential for agreement. And he sees and has the wisdom and knows that underneath the disguise of peace, they actually intended to harm him. The truth is, they were probably planning to kill him. In verse 2, Sambalat wanted, uh, wanted Nehemiah to meet him in the Valley of Ono, which might seem like a minute detail, but it actually kind of tips their hand. The Valley of Ono was uh, probably a dangerous place because it was on the very edge of Judah's borders and right where Sambalat's territory began. Nehemiah is drawn away from safety and into a trap. He's invited to toe the edge of what's safe. And I think this first temptation is a compelling picture of how sin operates and the enemy tempts me and how it tempts you. In its subtlety, it plays off of our curiosity to perhaps make things a little more comfortable for ourselves, a little bit easier. It finds us when we're tired, surrounded by challenging circumstances, and it calls out to us to toe that line of danger, just move closer to the edge of what we know to be safe. What starts off as curiosity about sin slowly draws you further and further away from safety, and it traps you. And even though Nehemiah resists this first temptation, part of what makes part of what makes the uh, temptation so difficult and spiritual warfare so difficult is what we see in verse 4. Sambalot continued to come back over and over and over again with the offer to come and talk and to come down from the wall and to negotiate. And we know what this is like if you put up any fight whatsoever to ever and try and be obedient and to not sin in your life. You resist sin one day and then in the back of your mind you know the temptation will return the next. And the day after that 
and the day after that, and the day after that. It's more patient than you are, always waiting, always looking for an opportunity. It's relentless, and it becomes so disheartening. We recognize how relentless sin is. It also helps us to understand how it's designed to work. It's designed to slowly wear us down to the point of exhaustion because it also finds its power in our weakness. And it's a slow drip that weakens us to the place. It weakens us to the place where ultimately we're willing to negotiate sin's presence in our lives and to come to terms with living with it. It's an incredible picture of the power and subtlety and temptation of sin. I was talking with a friend of mine recently that um, no one in this church knows, uh, doesn't even live in this state. But he called me a while back and he uh, said that he wanted to tell me and he, uh, he had, in 2015, early in the year, he'd um, committed adultery. He had cheated on his wife. And boys and girls, we've said before, the word adultery means that when a mommy or a daddy gives their hugs and their kisses and their love to someone that's not their husband or their wife, and that's what my friend did. And we sat down and he wanted to tell me and he, um, to talk it out. And he, hearing him talk was nothing short of fascinating about the psychology of what happens to us when sin begins to taunt and tempt and draw. What started off as long hours at work and a dissatisfaction with the intimacy in his own marriage and just the tiredness that he felt each and every day and the loneliness that began to creep into his life, it turned into an online addiction. And that took its course over a few years. And then all of a sudden he came across a curious little website that he decided to create an account on ashleymadison.com just to see what it was like. It's kind of curious. Then he gets a message from somebody that said, Hey, I like your profile. You seem interesting. You like the attention. And what's what's it hurt to message back? What's it hurt to say hello? They're nice. Said complimenting things about, complimentary things about me. And it turned into a few messages and then turned into an exchanging of numbers and texts. And then it turned into coffee. And he said he, at one point, he was texting so many different people at so many different times that he couldn't even remember who he was talking to anymore. And ultimately, it was a full-fledged affair. And hearing him describe his descent into adultery was absolutely staggering. The way that his curiosity overwhelmed him time and time again, and the way that his mind began to negotiate each and every time that it's okay if I tow the line of danger. It's nothing big. I can always pull away whenever I want. And the negotiation of sin in his life was world-class. And what began as something so simple slowly overcame him to the point that he actually lost sight of everything else, lost sight of his children, lost sight of his wife, lost sight of his job, and it became all that he could think about. Even when he wanted to quit, it still called out to him from that dangerous place, and it was irresistible. And this is what sin does in its constant persistence, is that it narrows your gaze. It gives you tunnel vision. It distracts you from what you should really be focusing on to the point, to the point where it's all you can think about. 
It becomes the thing that you look forward to at the end of every day and at the end of every long week and at the end of every long month. It becomes the thing that you think will bring, that will bring you comfort and solace and peace and a little bit of rest. You think it's the only thing that understands you and how hard your life is. It makes you feel alive and, and dead all at the same time. And it convinces you that everything is just fine. You can always back out whenever you want. Spiritual attack narrows your gaze and sells you the lie that you can negotiate with sin and coexist with it. And that's one of the hardest things about temptation is that when our gaze narrows, we forget about everything else and all of the consequences and the ripple effect that it causes in our lives. We don't consider how our negotiation in terms of living with sin and living agreements our negotiation and peace treaty with it, we don't think of how it might be affecting our marriage and we lose sight of how it drives a wedge between you and your children and the people around you. And we don't consider what's being lost and we forget that there's a larger story unfolding around us. And each time Nehemiah's enemies continue to try and distract him from the work and lure him away, Nehemiah, come down from the wall. Let's talk. He offers the same response each time. In verse 3, he says, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Nehemiah's response is one that has not lost perspective. His gaze hasn't narrowed to the point where the only thing he can think about is himself. And he understands that there's far more at stake, and there's a much bigger story unfolding around him And he remembers the work that God called him to participate in. He remembers that there's children that depend upon him and wives that seek his intimacy. There's husbands that seek encouragement. There's other people that are depending upon him. And the last thing you should do is abandon them and forsake them for a little bit of comfort. And when this negotiation doesn't work, Sanballat tries a a second tactic with Nehemiah. He sends an open letter to him, which an open letter basically is it's telling us that it's nothing short of just starting a rumor throughout the region. It's an open letter. It wasn't sealed. So anybody that wanted to see what the letter had to say, all they had to do was look. Which basically, in verses 6 and 7, the letter goes like this. Sambalat informs Nehemiah that all of the nations have heard that Nehemiah's real motive and his real goal is to rebuild the wall and rebuild the city so that he can be king over the people and lead a revolt against the empire and that the emperor, the king of Persia, will find out what Nehemiah really plans to do. And he ends it and concludes his letter with one last invitation to come down from the wall and meet together. Let me help you solve this problem, Nehemiah. Let's talk. If you take a closer a close look at what this letter is tempting Nehemiah with, it's to be concerned with his image more than in building the wall to be concerned with his image more than what God has asked him to do. Now, it's certainly an attempt, like the text says, to make Nehemiah and Israel afraid. If the king really found out that he was tricked by Nehemiah, there would be dire consequences, and you could bet that a foreign army would arrive one day. And so it's a great way for them to stop working on the wall and say, well, we better stop because that wasn't our intention. But even underneath that is how the temptation attempts to play off of any insecurity that Nehemiah might have about how others view him. 
Think about it this way. How easy would it be to receive an open letter like this? Where who knows how many people have read it, how far that rumor has spread, how much of it is true. And then to have your thoughts run wild with every possible scenario. What if people think this is true? Do people really think this is true about me? Do people think I'm still a good leader? Have I given the impression that I want to be king? I better spend a lot of time. I better go. Maybe I should go talk to the nobles. Maybe I should travel back and talk to the king to let him know that that wasn't my intention. What do people think of me? It's a powerful attempt to get Nehemiah to care far more about his image and self-preservation than with the work that God gave him. And we know how easy this is, don't we? How easy it is to fall into that temptation to even come here to church and be more concerned with how we're being perceived by others. Perhaps you know the time and energy and effort that can be spent on behalf of presenting the right image. I know full well the temptation of preaching a sermon is a great opportunity to promote myself more than promoting Jesus. It's no temptation that's lost on me. And we can so easily care about establishing our own reputation than in establishing the kingdom. But Nehemiah rejects their offer and he simply responds by saying that these ideas are simply a figment of their imagination, which I think is a profound response because he simply denies the claim and he does nothing more. He doesn't do anything else and he gets back to work. He doesn't concern himself with who might have seen the letter and what possible rumors might be spreading and what he could find out about how other people view him. He doesn't concern himself with things he can't control. And instead, he continues to focus on the work that God gave him. He entrusts himself to the goodness of God and he lets the chips fall where they may. And finally, when this doesn't work, Sambalot tries one last scheme. Verses 10 through 14 explain how Nehemiah was invited to the house of the prophet named Shemaiah. And Shemaiah prophesies to him and urges him to take refuge in the temple and to hide because Nehemiah's enemies were coming to kill him by night. Which really probably wasn't that far-fetched to Nehemiah. It'd be easy to think that that was true because, of course, he's aware that his enemies would rather have him dead than alive. Of course, they'd prefer him to be dead. And now he's being told he needs to run and take refuge in God's presence and into the temple and run there and shut himself in to protect himself. And this is probably the most nuanced and difficult attack of them all. And Nehemiah responds in verse 11 by saying, What man such as I would go into the temple to save his own life? I won't go in. And commentators are somewhat split over how to interpret Nehemiah's response. What is he really getting at? Some think it's simply because Nehemiah doesn't want to sin by going into the temple because he's not a priest, which means he's not allowed to enter into the temple. But I don't think that's quite it, because later in the story, Nehemiah goes into the temple and clears out all of the goods that Tobiah has decided to use the temple as a storehouse for his own wealth. And even beyond that, others before Nehemiah had gone and fled inside the temple that weren't priests either, King David included. 
And in these cases, each of them were about doing the Lord's work, and they took refuge in the temple. So what's the significance of Nehemiah's refusal to take refuge in the temple himself? For Nehemiah to run and hide in the temple actually meant that he had to give up doing the work that God wanted him to do. He had to quit working and come down from the wall because all of a sudden it became more threatening and more unsafe than before. It meant that he had to quit working on the work that God gave him because it got hard. He'd have to come down from the wall to try and find protection and safety for himself in the temple, but Nehemiah knew he wouldn't find it there. Why? It's because God's presence is not a safe haven for those who are unwilling to participate in the work that he has called them to do. And so the greater sin that Nehemiah is talking about is not the fact that he would walk into the temple as a layman. It's the fact that he would abandon God's work to protect himself. And he knew that he would find no refuge there. And so if you think about it this way for us, it's dangerous for us to overlook sin in our lives and continue to engage in it and not take it seriously because we know that in the end we can always come to God and find forgiveness whenever we're ready. The truth is God's grace is not a get-out-of-jail-free card whenever we want to exercise it and play it. God's grace is intended to enable and strengthen our obedience and our fight against sin, not be an excuse to ignore it. And Nehemiah trusts that he will find God in continuing the work, not by running from it. And that's even more true for us, because Jesus makes it explicitly clear If you would come after me, then you have to pick up your cross and follow me. If not, then you are not worthy of me. And in 52 days after the work began, the wall was finally completed in miraculous fashion. And the whole region trembled in fear. Because once they saw the wall completed and they heard what had happened, they knew that it was God that had accomplished it and done it. And everyone found themselves on the wrong side of the wall and on the wrong side of the work. And fear overcame them. And honestly, uh, spiritual battle is very real. The story weighed heavy on me this week. I felt the weight of it all week long for some mysterious reason. Nehemiah's struggle was just so real. His loneliness, having to work, against all of these difficult circumstances and being tempted over and over and over again, feeling overwhelmed by an enemy that outnumbered him and was more powerful than him, the despair he had to feel. And the truth is, I've been trying to focus on issues in my own life. And I woke up one morning this week thinking about this story and just felt the utter weight of despair and hopelessness. And it was overwhelming, and it was lonely, and the temptation kept bringing out in my head, come down from the wall. Come down from the wall, Zach, and let's talk. We can negotiate. Let's work this out. And I kept asking God, why do you allow such overwhelming weakness? Why do you allow such overwhelming weakness? 
Because the truth is, I feel hopeless and I don't want to work anymore. I'm tired. And I want to come down from the wall. I'm so tired. And Nehemiah's prayer in verse 9 stuck out to me. He says, But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now, O God, strengthen my hands. That when it got the worst for Nehemiah, and he felt the weight and the power of the temptation and the opposition that was being waged, that's when he turns to God for help. It's so easy to look at a story like this and to wonder why we're not strong like Nehemiah. It's so easy to think, oh, why can't I have the willpower and strength and fortitude and vision that Nehemiah had? You misunderstand the story. This story is not a story about the strength of Nehemiah and his amazing willpower. This is a story of God's faithfulness to those who entrust themselves to him in the midst of their weakness and in the midst of their inability and are willing to call upon a strength when they feel hopeless and weak and in despair. This is a story that ultimately points us to Jesus who himself was tempted face-to-face by Satan three times. He was tempted to take the easy way and to strike a bargain with sin, to not face hunger, to not have to suffer. He was tempted to reveal his identity and to do it in a way that was by his own hands rather than the way that God the Father had asked him to do. He was offered to take every possible road to avoid weakness, and yet that's the exact road that he took. And the difference between Jesus and Nehemiah is that Nehemiah, well, Jesus wasn't just called to risk his life and his well-being. He was called to give it. He was called to lay it down. And on the cross, he was tempted with the same exact thing. Come down from the cross, Jesus. Come down from the wall. Come down. It doesn't have to be this way. It can be easier. But in response, he says, Father, I commit my hands, or I commit my spirit into your hands. And he entrusts his welfare and his well-being to the Father. Now, I think when Jesus died, I've always thought that Satan had to throw every possible thing he could at Jesus to keep him dead. He had to muster every possible power of sin and darkness and authority to keep him in the grave. And as a result of that, Jesus felt the full weight of temptation. He felt the full weight and the power of sin, a loneliness and a despair and a hopelessness that I could not imagine in 10,000 lifetimes. And ultimately, he felt the full power and weight of death. And yet, Peter, in Acts 2, he says, Yet, it was impossible for death to keep its hold upon him. Death could not overcome Jesus. He was too powerful. And so this morning, you might feel the weight as well of temptation and sin. You feel hopelessness and despair. But let me ask you this. Do you know the power of your Savior? Do you know the power of your Savior? Do you know what's available to you? Do you know that he suffered all things so that there would be no circumstance, no trial or temptation where you could honestly say, well, the gospel knows nothing of this. This is too much for Jesus. He can't change this, change me. And I'm hopeless. 
Hebrews tells us a different story. That because he took on the full weight of sin, and he, with, he took on everything that Satan, sin, and death had to throw at him, we can boldly run to the throne of grace to find help in the time of need. But the problem is, is that we won't ever come across it, and we won't find it when we run the other way, when we feel the weight and despair of weakness. Because we miss out on so much more. Because it's not just his strength, it's also the hope and joy that he longs to give you. The same joy and hope that allowed him to endure the cross. And I think that's what we all want whenever we feel weakness and despair. It brings such hopelessness and pointlessness. Who doesn't want to experience abounding hope? I talked with Ryan Swindle a few uh, months ago, or a month ago. And if you don't know, Amber's pregnant, finishing up her first trimester. And she has battled um, morning sickness like I've never seen or heard. It has leveled her, and it has been incredibly overwhelming at times. And one day, Ryan texted her while she was at work and while he was at work, and he said, hey, how are you feeling? She responded back. She said, actually, I'm really scared. I'm nervous because I feel just fine. I actually feel great today. So I fear the worst. And Ryan said, well, we, he said, I'll pray for you. Let me know how you feel. Keep me posted. And five minutes later, she sends a text back and she says, never mind, I feel terrible. Praise God. <laughs> the truth is, there's a type of joy and hope. There's a type of joy and hope that can only be found in discomfort and in despair. And it's the type of joy that broadens your gaze far beyond your circumstances and gives you a far more beautiful picture to gaze at and live for than anything sin would try to negotiate. Perhaps you've come down from the wall. You haven't worked on the kingdom and waging war against sin and the work that God has called you to do. You haven't picked up a sword or trowel in years or months and you've been discouraged. You've been distracted by sin, negotiating with it in your life, or you've been distracted by worrying more about your image and how you're perceived by others. Or you've treated God's grace as a license to no longer labor against sin. I can do what I want Monday through Saturday because there's always confession on Sunday. This morning you're invited to experience something new. You're invited to get back on the wall and share in the joy and strength and hope of your Savior. But the thing is, you can only find it in the places where you come to understand that you need it most. We find the power of Jesus in accepting our weakness, not running from it. And there we find freedom. This morning, Jesus invites you back on the wall. And when you feel that weakness, and it will surely come, you can call upon God in a way that Nehemiah never knew and never could because of Jesus. And you can say, but now my Jesus, strengthen my hands. Let's pray. Jesus, we often settle for the lie that we're somehow supposed to be strong somehow supposed to be able to fight sin and 
on our own terms. We often think that if we were mature Christians and strong Christians, and we wouldn't struggle with sin the way we do, or we could overcome it easier. And what a lie that is. There is no maturity that is available to us that does not limit our weakness or tries to that minimizes the weakness that we're called to recognize. And yet we often run from that weakness. We often run from the places of hopelessness and despair. And we miss out on so much because that's where your promises flower and come to life. It's not easy to follow you, Jesus. It's not easy to wage war against the sin in our lives. But we know we can come to you boldly because you are victorious. You sit at the right hand of the Father and all authority on heaven and earth has been given to you because you have defeated every enemy that could come against us. And it's you we cry out to and we say, now, Jesus, strengthen our hands. We ask all these things in your name and for your glory alone. Amen.